As one of America's largest financial services companies, Nationwide makes simplicity a priority so financial professionals can help their clients achieve their retirement goals. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrow and Lisa Abramowitz. Join us each day for insight from the best in economics, geopolitics, finance, and investment. Subscribe to Bloomberg Surveillance On Demand on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere you get your podcasts. And always on Bloomberg.com, the Bloomberg Terminal, and the Bloomberg Business App. Should we get to our guest? We should. Uh, she's, yeah, around she's around the table with us, usually on the other end of a camera. Anna Hatt, it's been a good to see you in person. Thanks for being with us. <laughs> yeah, from Wells Fargo, as Tom just moves his autosport magazines away I'm from moving. You want to read a copy? The table. We have Aston Martin coming up. Do you watch F1? I do. We spoke about Lewis Hamilton last You're time. You're a Mercedes fan, mm-hmm. aren't you? We'll catch up with Aston Martin later this hour. We'll talk about Fernando, who's rumoured to be dating Taylor Swift, but... Fernando is? Yeah. Oh, my you word. Not, the, I'm so far behind in the gossip. On the internet gossip, the rumor that Fernando is dating Taylor Swift. That's a story for another time. The Wells Fargo <laughs> equity strategist joins us now D-block. to talk about stocks. Anahan, you and a team. Chris Harvey leading the way for equities at Wells, looking for a 10% correction at the headline S&P 500. What is it that you see that's going to lead to that correction? We're seeing really margin compression. We think that earnings are slowing. And right now, where earnings projections are as we go through Q1 reporting, they continue to believe pretty much a flat growth year over year for the S&P 500. We think that's too optimistic. So we're bringing our EPS number down, about 10% contraction in EPS growth. We think that's very reasonable in an environment that you expect GDP growth, slowing consumer, and still inflationary pressure. So you put that and you tack on still a pretty reasonable multiple of 18 half. That brings us lower. How does tech absolutely crushing it over the last week factor into your call? Absolutely something we're watching, but we think that it's getting a little ahead of itself right now. You are seeing as well, why is that uh, running ahead of itself? The yield markets. You're down with the 10-year round three half. That is a move already expecting Fed cuts. The market is expecting cuts after this meeting. And again, that's just too soon for us. I think that realization and people having to move Mm -hmm. uh, forward or out their expectation for monetary easing is going to make things a little tougher in this summer. It's a challenge your mathiness at Yale, and I'm thinking of Nassim Taleb, the great quant uh, finance guru, on the tail risks out there. If I look at the tails of the distribution, the risks of the distribution, good and bad, out to next year, can you see them or is it as opaque as you've ever seen I certainly think there are things top of mind, actually, and that's what's gotten things so interesting. We know what to look at. We're just not sure how to weigh each one. For example, we're looking at the commercial real estate space. That's been a hot topic. What's going to happen if those loans can't get renewed? Another one is student loans. Right. How does that impact consumer spending if student loans don't get dismissed? Uh, we're looking at these kind of factors. And as well, what if the Fed really 
doesn't start cutting? What if they just pause and hold because okay, inflation so is sticking? That's a litany of worries that all of our listeners and viewers have. There's got to be a good side of this and that the SPX has recovered from a great bear market. We're back to negative 3%, whatever it is, uh, 12 months trailing. You're basically saying take the summer off and take the rest of the year off, right? When you take the summer off under Anaheim, uh, Wells Fargo economics, do you go to cash? How do you... How do you take the summer off based on your 4,200 call? I think actually rather than go full cash, we're not that bearish yet. We do think you can weather through this by looking at those secular growers. I still think there's opportunity. And you look in the cap goods space as well, for example, and you're seeing that volumes are actually holding up in all other sectors, especially in, even in something like staples, like food area, you're seeing volumes shrink. So there still are opportunities to keep that growth, to plow through what could be that rough summer we talked about. I know it's difficult to identify specific names with you. So I'm going to be delicate about asking this question. Are the cloud names secular growers still? Oh, well, you know, as someone who believes in that technology and certainly uses it and believes in the computing power of it, I do still think that there's growth opportunities. But like we said, especially with the software space and tech itself overall has had such a hot run. It's not somewhere where I'm ready to really pour in uh, the investments now. So what is a secular growth story that you do want to get behind at the moment? So besides the crop goods space, where we do like as well, media and entertainment. And now, again, that too has had a great start to the year. We still think that it's attractive. We still think there's opportunities. And a lot of it is thinking about where consumers will continue to spend even as they have to tighten the belt. And part of that is really in the experiences and the services that they can enjoy. Can we get an extra level of detail here? Is this Tom spending more money on streaming apps? What exactly are you talking about? It could be him watching more F1 and spending there. That certainly is true. Uh, There is that push. But again, it's more of what is going to relatively outperform when people start pulling back on their spending, pulling back on the revenge travel spending you were talking about, how those prices in airlines are still expensive. So you think think the airline story is done? Can I go that far? Do you think it's done? I wouldn't say it's done, but it's not somewhere where if I had cash to put to work, where I would rotate into right now. Okay, TK, that sounds like it's done. I, I, you know, I look at the Wells Fargo economic call and, and, and you know, your economics team uh, looking at where GDP is. Is there enough nominal GDP to keep this game going? To me, that's the heart of the matter. How do you fold in Wells Fargo economics into your equity analysis? So our expectation for actually GDP growth is just above 1% for this year, but pretty much a flat 2024. And that is concerning, but I think the sharpest pain points where we see the most GDP contraction is 4Q and 1Q, uh, 4Q this year and the beginning of next year is going to be the toughest drop in GDP. But that doesn't necessarily align with when we expect to see the toughest earnings contraction. Okay, just to be specific about that, just final question, when is that earnings contraction? What's the window? that you and the team are looking for? We think really it's this year, uh, and we think it's already occurring. You already have been seeing those margins come under pressure, and you've seen that 4Q of last year earnings came in a little lower than projected. I think that continues, and these are the quarters now where it's going to be toughest. That realization is what's going to push equity multiples and equity uh, levels lower. Anna Han of Wells Fargo. Anna, great to do this in person. Wonderful. Really good to see you. Thank you. The team at Wells Fargo looking for a 10% correction in the next three to six months off the back of earnings. 
with us now, and he's helped us so much. I think of Ken Leon over at CFRA, Michael Mayo, when we can drag him in. Gerard Cassidy, up early in London, head of U.S. Bank Equity Strategy at the Royal Bank of Canada, and we welcome him uh, this morning. Gerard, I'm going to go to the PowerPoint. I thought it was really quite nicely done by J.P. Morgan. I'm sure it was massaged by a staff of 42. And buried at the bottom was an internal rate of return guesstimate of 20%. You and I aren't going to go to an iterative uh, uh, discussion of the equation, but I fell off my chair. Is this really an IRR at 20%? Is it that lucrative for Fortress Diamond? Tom, it is, and uh, thank you for having me on the program from London here. And I would point out that one of the reasons the internal rate of return is so strong is that in a, an agreement with the FDIC, which is very common, the FDIC, when they sell these banks out of receivership, will take a loss-sharing agreement with the buyer. As a result, when you have one of those loss-sharing agreements, the amount of capital that the bank is required to hold against those assets goes down. Down. And that's one of the reasons the IRR is right. as strong as it is. What kind of pop do you calculate J.P. Morgan will get if interest rates actually come in, if we disinvert, if we get ourselves back to some form of normal interest rate structure? To me, it's an incalculable delta. It's, it's just a huge number if they get the markets to cooperate. You know, and Tom, you really put your thumb on it because if you go back to 94-95, and I'm not suggesting we're going to have that Goldilocks <coughs> economy we had in 95, but Greenspan took rates up from 3 to 6%, and we didn't have a recession. And then he started cutting rates in 95. The bank stocks were up 55% that year. So if we don't have a big recession, as many people think we are going to have, the credit problems for the banks will not be that severe, and rates will start. Yeah coming down probably next year. You and I studied at the altar of Henry Kaufman. He was so kind to me when I first joined Bloomberg, Mr. Cassidy. Henry Kaufman is quoted by John Authors. Folks, Matt Levine, John Authors, read him today if you're part of Global uh, Wall Street. And Mr. Authors talks about Kaufman as a quasi-public utility. Is that what we've got now with a combination of J.P. Morgan and Bank of America? Are they a public utility? Tom, you know, I wouldn't um, refrain too much from saying that, but other than to say they're financial utilities, and that's not a negative, that is a positive. If we, we could have banks that consistently pay their dividends through the cycle and also deliver, you know, mid to lower teens RO, return on tangible common equity, those are very attractive returns. So you could call them financial utilities, in, in my opinion. Great for shareholders. I wonder if it's great for customers. Jared, let's talk about that. The deposits that they're assuming, JP Morgan from First Republic. You asked about this on the call yesterday. Jared, how do those deposits reprice? Did you get some clarity on that? John, what happens normally in bank failures, quite often the acquirers are able to renegotiate down those rates of interest on those deposits. Not the term CDs, those are contractual. But that was the reason for the question because that makes the deal even more attractive to um, you know, J.P. Morgan. And quite often, and I'm not saying this happened with First Republic, but quite often what happens when these banks head into receivership, they have to pay up for deposits to bring money in. 
in. That's why the buyers get to reprice them downwards, which makes it more profitable for the buyer. I love the way that Jeremy Barnum, the CFO of JP Morgan, <coughs> addressed this. Listen to this language. I think the reprice experience will blend over time into the rest of our deposit franchise. Do you know what that means, Tom? their deposits and their rate of return will come down to zero over time. Because over at JP Morgan, Jared, they're not paying much for deposits and they don't need to. Jared, I was wondering yesterday whether you thought they were downplaying to some extent for PR reasons, just how profitable this deal might be for JP Morgan. John, I think you said it well. I think it's an extremely profitable deal for J.P. Morgan. Uh, they, their size and their strength gave them the advantage. We wrote last night in our research note on this transaction that the prior two transactions, the loans were marked to market to about 77 cents on the dollar. And in the case of J.P. Morgan yesterday, they marked them to 83 cents on the dollar. So they didn't have to be as aggressive as maybe some of the other bidders who were bidding yeah. on this, and that was an advantage they had. There's the math, folks. You get it from Gerard Cassidy, not from us. We go to the pros, and John, you got a, a bond at par or a loan at par down to 77 cents, and J.P. Morgan paid up where the others wouldn't. So, Jared, they've got experience of dealing with distressed <clears throat> institutions, Washington Mutual, Bear. Jamie Dimon's been there, done that. Jared, you addressed that question as well. Why is this so different, and why in five years won't we be sitting here rethinking everything we've just said in the last 24 hours. The, John, the, the major difference, and Jamie Dimon addressed this yesterday to my question as well, which is this was a deposit flight deposit run problem. The It was a classic duration issue of long assets on duration, short on funding. This was not a credit problem. And, that, and First Republic had pristine credit. And I would suggest that this is a very different situation. As a result, it's not as risky for J.P. Morgan and the others because this is a mismatch of assets versus liabilities. And they're now going to benefit from the marking of market of those assets and the yields that that creates. Jared, wonderful coverage, as always. Good to see you in London as well. Jared Cassidy Thank there you. of RBC Capital Markets. Thank you, Jared. Nobody ever says, make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs to ways to cover rising health care costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So, there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE.
Right now, and this is a joy, as John and I continue our coverage of this banking crisis, it pays to have somebody with real-world experience. He is global currencies and interest rate strategy at Australia's Macquarie, but far more Terry Weissman is something that has lived what so many other people are doing. I want to go back to Alan Schwartz, David Malpass, John Riding, you, Emmy Shio, and it blew up in March of 2008 at Bear Stearns. From your distance, but your tangible experience of collapse, how is J.P. Morgan different in 2008 than J.P. Morgan is in 2023? Let, let me, instead of speaking about J.P. Morgan, Tom, let me just talk about the banking Please. sector generally. Um, 2008 was, I think, qualitatively different than the situation we're seeing now for the banks in the United States. In 2008, you had a situation where the, the primary problem at the banks was the asset side of the balance sheet. It was generally a situation where there were too many mortgages that went bad too quickly. That's an asset side problem. It's a collateral side problem. Um, what we're seeing now is different. What we're seeing now primarily is deposit flight. In other words, it's a liability side problem. It's lack of confidence in the banks. Yes, it may be lack of confidence in the banks because people are worried about, about their ability to continue to honor their obligations, mm -hmm. their liabilities, their deposits. But nonetheless, this is a crisis that has started from the liability side. And I think that makes it qualitatively different. It actually makes it easier for um, uh, entities like the Federal Reserve to solve because the Federal Reserve has backstops. It could come in and replace the liability side that the banks are losing. Right. Uh, if a $1 of deposits leaves, the bank can simply go to the Fed and borrow from on, on the primary credit facility or from the new BTFP and get that dollar back, rebuild its base of liabilities, and continue to do what it's doing. So I think this is qualitatively different than 2008. And can interest rates assist government institutions and can interest rates assist J.P. Morgan here by getting the wind behind them over the next one, two, and five years to make this easier? There's nothing better in promoting confidence than economic growth. Nominal income growth, certainly, because obligations are typically in nominal terms. Mm -hmm. But if you can't get nominal growth, you might as well just get real growth. I guess the question comes down to, do lower interest rates help growth? I think they do, right? Uh, if, if the Fed were to lower interest rates these days, certainly you would get some inflation, presumably, but that would be coincident with nominal growth. It would help corporations, bank, and every obligator in the economy honor those obligations, honor their debts. I think that would reduce the amount of financial stress in the economy. Let's talk about something that's not promoting confidence. The debt ceiling debate down in Washington, D.C. People are already exhausted about it and negotiations haven't really even started to get going. Now, Terry, you've got a different view on this. Can you just walk us through piece by piece? And we have time to do this. So just go through piece by piece why you think this can get addressed. Well, first of all, we've had examples of, of a debt ceiling crisis in the past before, and they have found res resolution. Now, I'm not going to say that this is the same, but I think the differences today are political. They're not really economic. Why do I say that? Because Kevin McCarthy wanted the acclamation of his party to become speaker, and he had to make certain promises. And among the promises he made, given that this was January and we were already uh, coming up against the debt ceiling, Janet Yellen had said so in January, one of the promises he made was that he wasn't going to back down with respect to getting out of the administration what he wants in terms of spending cuts if he's going to go with a debt ceiling increase. Unfortunately, he got the speakership and now he painted himself in a quarter because he made that promise to his caucus and he can't really back out that easily. So now you have a, uh, a, a, a what is it, a, a stone, hard stone coming up against a hard wall, et cetera. You've got two intransigent sides. I actually think that we might come down to the wire and I actually think that the way we may resolve this is not through the traditional means 
of a debate and negotiation that results in a compromise. I think we may approach a crisis, but I think the cleaner solution here, um, if we get to, if we don't get to a political resolution, is for simply for the U.S. Treasury to continue to do what it's doing, i.e., issue debt, and get challenged in the courts. Uh, uh, by the opposition. Now, remember, they've already passed the spending. So there's some legal basis for the view that they have to issue the debt to support that spending because that was a bill that was passed. But what happens at that point? Well, I think it will go immediately to the Supreme Court. I think the Supreme Court could issue an injunction. I think the Supreme Court has legal basis for doing that. They have uh, Amendment 14, Section 4 says the debt of the United States will not be questioned. And that's a legal basis for telling the administration, you can do what you want. And if that happens, by the way, it'll put the debt ceiling situation on ice forever because now you have a clean clear judicial ruling so that's a clean that's a clean way to do it there are other there are other doesn't not, sound too clean let's just well, put it that well way. look i mean i mean i mean to, to come in here and, and and have the supreme court which is co-equal to the other two branches of government and effectively say no this is our purview the outcome would be clean sure the process sure. not so well much. it can happen in the course of 48 hours you don't okay. really need uh, a, you know a lengthy hearings on the part of the supreme court they have the constitution right there they can read what uh, amendment 14 section 4 says it's very clear to me uh, you should read it yourself. I mean, it, it's 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 undeniable uh, that this is not uh, something that's constitutional to let the to let uh, to let intentionally let certainly intentionally let the uh, uh, payments go unpaid. Uh, there's another way to do this, of course. The, the, the Treasury has you know hundreds of billions of gold uh, uh, in storage, right, at Fort Knox. Uh, one way to do this is simply to issue gold certificates to the Federal Reserve and have the Federal Reserve continue to fund uh, the the. Um, the, uh, the 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 government's operations Ooh. through this period. That's a solution. Uh, look, there are there are a few workarounds. People have proposed these. You can right. go on the web and you can read them, and they happen to be cleaner than the messy situation oh. we might get ourselves into in the next few weeks. This is a dissertation, folks, on the history of debt coming out of World War II. Terry, how much of this is almost religious in nature? We have a culture in this America. I'm going to generalize it's Calvinist, but that's unfair to the gentleman from Switzerland. Debt <laughs> is bad. And Heil Bronner and Bernstein wrote a classic monograph on this 30 years ago. Debt is bad. We've got to get rid of debt. And then we don't, do we? Right. I mean, don't. A, to me, there's a whole cultural overlay here that's unspoken. Yeah. Debt, debt in support of, of investment, debt in support of uh, assets being created in the economy, debt in support of more productivity by way of that is good. Uh, debt, debt in support of more spending uh, without a concomitant amount of savings on the other side is bad, especially when that debt rises to a point where uh, the income that's generated by the spender is no longer sufficient to to honor that debt, to support that debt, to support the the, the obligations uh, uh, of that debt, implied by that debt. So I think I think debt is is perfectly fine. It's it's an aspect of the capitalist economy. With limits, right? It depends where it's where it's going, what it's what what activities it's supporting effectively. So let's get to the market question: Is there any risk? What is the risk outside of the so-called at-risk securities in the T-bill market? What is that risk? What does that look like? Well, look, a lot of people say that if there's a missed payment on a principal, uh, a principal payment or missed coupon payment, 
that uh, Moody's will put the U.S. in default or S&P will put the U.S. in default. And then that will trigger um, CDS uh, payments on, on, on the swaps. I, I think that is, is, is not realistic. And I say that with reference to the fact that unlike a corporate bond or a corporate obligation, U.S. Treasuries don't have cross-default provisions. If I do not, if I as the U.S. Treasury do not make a payment on a single bond, it does not accelerate the payments on every other obligation that the U.S. Treasury has. Yes, you can say maybe that bond has defaulted, but the corpus of debt has not defaulted. There's no, there's no, there are no cross cross default provisions. And that's tricky because you have to think of a default as something different. And Moody's would have to think about it as something different than they would if the similar thing happened for, for, for a corporate issuer. And that's tricky. That calls, that's, calls for a judgment call at that point. And it's not too clear to me that even if a payment is skipped, that Moody's will go that far because it has that out. They can avoid calling a default. We could avoid going to triggering CDS. What would that mean for Things like collateral, treasuries used as collateral for all types of things. What would that mean? Well, look, the, the collateral, the, the value of the collateral is only as good as the price of the collateral. So to the extent that we're talking about a few pips change in the price of those treasuries, mm-hmm. yeah, you'll, you'll demand uh, uh, more of them to support uh, uh, you know, whatever repo activity or lending activity you're trying to, 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 to sponsor. But in the final analysis, as long as the treasury bill has value in dollars, it'll serve as good collateral, right? 30 seconds, Martin's Place, Sydney, Australia, Macquarie Group. Do you still believe in the Pacific Rim expansion? Oh, I don't necessarily believe in the China expansion. Uh, Long term and structurally, I mean, yes, China's undergoing a nice recovery these days. Uh, it's hindered somewhat by by the uh, the slowdown in, in demand coming out of Europe and the U.S., but domestic demand in China is good, and that's enough to keep China's engine moving forward for another year. Beyond that, uh, structurally speaking, you know, you have a demographic problem in China. You have the demise of globalization. Uh, these are the things that are going to slow the Asia Pacific story beyond this year. Weak PMI early this week. Surprised to see it, Terry Wiseman. Thank you. Joining us now, I'm really pleased to say, is Mike Craig, the team principal for the Aston Martin F1 team. Mike, wonderful to have you with us on Bloomberg TV and Bloomberg Radio. I have to say, Mike, this wasn't what I was expecting last year when I heard the news that Sebastian Vettel was leaving and Fernando Alonso was stepping in. To see you second in the Constructors' Championship is quite something. Mike, what's led that turnaround for you and the team? Well, I, to be honest with you, I did not expect that either uh, to make such a big step. But um, <clears throat> we we tried to develop our car as much as we could last year, uh, and uh, during the year we made substantial progress. Um, but it was never enough to pick the big points and move forward in the championship. So uh, um, yeah, by the end of the year, the car was in a much much better place, and we were much more competitive. And we took another step over the winter. And uh, because everything is relative in this sport, it could also be that uh, some other competitors have not made uh, the step that they wanted. And it brought us to to the place we are in now. And uh, yeah, we are quite happy to be there. Mike, we'll get to the business of all of this in just a moment. Can you tell me how important it's been to bring Dan Fallows, the technical director, on board to Aston Martin F1? Yeah, Dan is, is one of one of many uh, recruits that we had lately uh, all across last year. And they have been very, very uh, complementary to great workforce that we were already having. So um, all in all, I think they, they, they came together as a great group, uh, uh, get, get all the strengths out of everybody. And uh, you see the result on track finally. 
I look, uh, Mike, at the extraordinary original that each race is different. In American baseball, we compare Fenway to Chavez Ravine and other baseball parks. The distance from Baku to Miami in terms of the actual track is just extraordinary to me. How much is the adjustment for you in, what, 10 days to go from Azerbaijan to Florida? Well, it is. Uh, it is first of all, it's a huge logistics effort to bring the whole the whole circus uh, over to the US. But uh, in that short time, uh, then uh, you have to adjust basically everything. Not only the clocks, uh, but uh, you have to bring the cars, uh, adapt the cars to the layout of the Miami circuit because it's substantially different. And then we need to get used to the temperatures, to the heat, and uh, all the things that are different. So mm-hmm. it's uh, it's quite a substantial exercise for everybody. You know, I look at Red Bull as a leading team now, and the two drivers really going at it second by second, tenth of a second by tenth of a second. And the relationship of your two drivers is absolutely extraordinary. The veteran Alonso with Stroll, and granted, I get the idea that Dad's helping out as well, but Stroll seems like he's really earned his stripes. Explain the relationship of your two drivers as they go into Miami. Well, uh, they are uh, first of all, they are great drivers, but then also they are great human beings, very mature and great teammates, and they uh, they help us. Uh, big big time to 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 work as a team much much more than uh, other teams do very often uh, and you see it with other teams there is a, a fierce rivalry between teams and teammates uh, which uh, at times is even ending in 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 uh, accidents at the circuit between these two cars um, i think we are fortunate to to have two two such great drivers that have understood uh, that uh, this is a team sport and uh, that our, the rivals are out there uh, with the different colored cars than ours, uh, and we need together uh, at every possible opportunity to 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 do better than the others. Mike, I have to be honest with you, and this is my perspective. The Miami racetrack looks absolutely terrible. And Mike, I've got to say, and maybe you've got to be more diplomatic because of the position you're in. I think there's a worry for long-term fans of this sport that the emphasis is on breaking the United States of America, and they're willing to sacrifice the quality of the racing to do so. Mike, do you share those concerns? No, I do not share these concerns um, <clears throat> because I think uh, the racetrack in Miami has everything that is uh, that every that the normal modern Formula One racetrack has to have. It has uh, straights with DRS zones. It has high speed corners. It has some low speed corners. It has been completely resurfaced, and I think the heat uh, that we will have over the weekend will. Uh, Will add uh, a, a lot of a lot of difficulty to cool the cars, but mainly to also keep the tire management under control. So all in all, I think we are up for for a great weekend with great racing. Well, clearly the future's bright for the sport. The attention it's got off the back of the Netflix series has just been absolutely phenomenal. To get my partner in crime, Tom Keane, on board to focus on F1 has been a pleasure for me over the last 12 months or so. Mike, I want to talk about things further down the road. There's always been a relationship between the F1 team and the road car. Ferrari is a great example of that over the years. More recently, Aston Martin again, talking about the same thing. I want to understand the tension 10 years out. When Aston Martin and the road car is fully electrified by 2030, say, where does that leave Aston Martin F1 and the relationship between the F1 team and what goes into the road car? Well, that is a very good question. Uh, and uh, this, the, same, the same applies also to all the other brands, uh, the one that you were just mentioning. I think uh, F1 is currently working heavily into 
carbon net zero into going more sustainable by 2030, uh, which is much less than, uh, than in 10 years time. So uh, by 2026, we will run only on sustainable fuel. We will substantially increase the amount of electric uh, power that we will deliver to the, to the car. Uh, it will be around 50-50. So the Formula 1 cars are already hybrids, but the electric part will will increase and it will complement the road car fleet by by these developments. How will that take place if you're going to retain to some degree the internal combustion engine and the road car won't? Well, I I think lately the the developments in... in, um, Artificial or, or or how you call them sustainable fuels uh, is is adding or is is massively increasing life of the combustion engine and it has been also classified like that. So uh, from that point of view, I think Formula One can be a great uh, participant or a great uh, catalyst to uh, to the road car business to make these uh, these nice cars that we have uh, today sustainable and be able to run them for longer. I sense from what you're saying, Mike, that you don't think F1 ever becomes fully electrified. And actually, to some degree, you can go some way to preserving the internal combustion engine on the road. Is that right? Well, that's a good question. Uh, I think uh, the combustion engine will have its its time uh, for the next 10 years for sure. Uh, But ultimately, it will fade out uh, and Formula 1 will will not be... uh, uh, with a combustion engine in, in, right. in, say, 20 years from now. I would doubt that. Right. Mike, our reporters in London, they're like, okay, enough talk about Taylor Swift and the rest of it. What's the relationship with Honda going to be out to 2026? Are we going to see some drama as Honda tries to climb into Formula F1? Um, we, we are quite happy with the powertrain, uh, power unit manufacturer that we have at the moment. Uh, we have... Uh, uh, a lot of on our, on our plate at the moment for 2023, 2024 to make further progress. And uh, we are not really too much into 2026 at this stage. Mike, just for the pit passes for Miami, 731 Lexington Avenue. We've got the yes, zip code. Yeah. We've got the zip code for Mike. 10022. Okay. I'll buy, tell Alonzo, I'll buy the Globetrotter luggage if you can get us into the pits. <laughs> Mike, thanks for this. I appreciate it, mate. We could be there with Taylor. <laughs> Good luck for the weekend. We're not going to ask about Taylor. No, we're not going to ask about Mike Taylor. Craig, thank you very much. Mike, thank you. Mike, thank you. Nobody ever says, make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs, to ways to cover rising healthcare costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest-growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank. Because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. 
Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Henrietta Trey is now with us, Economic Policy Research Director, Veda Partners, with great experience on the marble halls of Capitol Hill. When there is a debt crisis, when there is some form of shutdown or jawboning, how does the budget process change on Capitol Hill? I, I think, if anything, it speeds up. It speeds up dramatically. Um, there was a lot of hay made about Secretary Yellen moving the date for the debt ceiling up from June 5th to as early as June 1st yesterday. But the reality is that nobody does anything until the last minute anyway. Right. We've got about four weeks to get this resolved. If those four weeks are in May or June or July or even September, it's not like they're going to start working in advance. Um, I think Speaker McCarthy demonstrated a lot of goodwill by putting that vote on the floor last week, getting things moving well ahead of schedule, even before Secretary Yellen provided the update post tax receipts. Um, so basically, it just spurs them into action. We've got four weeks to get this resolved. That's plenty of time. We've seen it done in far less. Um, and in fact, I would wager that it won't even start to come to right. an end until the week of the 22nd. So based on that answer, five guys sitting on a couch with Chair Yellen in the Oval Office on May 9th doesn't have an urgency to it? Is that what I hear? Um, I'm happy for the big four to get in a room. I think that's very important. That is one of the steps in the process. But we have a number of other formalities that also need to be accomplished. Senator Schumer, the majority leader, has scheduled two votes in the Senate, or queued them up at least. Um, one on a clean debt ceiling hike with all the Democrats will vote for, and then one on the House pass bill, which some of the Republicans might vote for. So we're still at least a week away from any concrete negotiations. I want to see some of the budget committee chairs get called up. I imagine that there will be more than just this one uh, group of big four that gets called up to the White House. Um, and then, of course, we really want to see staff in the room. You guys know this about me, and so do all of our clients. I really care what staff has to say more than anything else. So I want to see those guys get together. And I would imagine that starts soon, and they're able to cobble together a deal within the next three weeks. And let's tease that out a little bit more. Henrietta, I don't have a read on this. I've got no idea which way it goes. I'm told by some people it's the same movie, same ending, won't be any different this time around. I'm told by other people it is different this time. Henrietta, what informs your read on that? You mentioned staff. Walk me through it. Right. Well, not only have we seen this movie so many times before, but it's almost an exact repeat of 2011. Um, you can even find similar votes from 2014 and 2017. We have the exact same dynamic where the president is a Democrat, the Senate is a, controlled by Democrats, and the House is controlled by Republicans. What ends up happening is you see a bill passed in the House that's written um, mostly with the intention of just getting the my majority party in one chamber signed on. That's what they did last week. And now we're going to start moving into the place where staff goes through the fine print and finds 300 to 500 billion dollars in deficit reduction, which is the level that staff advises me on the Democratic side. They're willing to swallow in order to hike the debt ceiling to 33 trillion, which would get us roughly through, um, call it March of 2025, after the presidential election cycle. Those are the kind of minutia points that staff is focused on. Um, and you see those cuts come from things like clawing back COVID relief, reducing service on the debt, um, re uh, fraud, waste and abuse spending, 
all things that were incorporated as a part of the Republican passed bill, uh, but not nearly the three trillion plus number that uh, Speaker McCarthy put on the floor. That's a non-starter. We need to get that down to 300 to 500 billion um, and horse trade back and forth. And that's what staff will do behind the scenes. There's going to be a lot of ink wasted on a lot of analysis between now and then. Henrietta, indulge me and go through this scenario. This is something Terry Wiseman of Macquarie mentioned in the last hour. He said this, and this is a quote from him. If we approach a crisis, I think the cleanest solution here if we don't get to a political solution is simply for the US Treasury to continue do, to do what it's doing, i.e. issue debt. Henrietta, he made the point that they can just go on, ignore the political situation and carry on issuing debt and pay their bills. Is that something you can see as a workable solution to this? No, um, no offense, but it's it's just not. Congress is going to insist on acting here. I know it looks like they don't want to take a vote, but they react very poorly when any federal agency or otherwise takes some of their authority away. That jurisdictional control is something that you see committees covet um, and certainly the House and Senate. Uh, look no further than ways it means for their tax policy bills, getting blue slipped, you know, insisting that they start in the House. Um, they react very poorly when any federal regulator oversteps their bounds and usurps their authority. So I believe Congress will act. I am not concerned about whether they will act. Default is not an option. I think investors should, you know, sort of skip over the headlines and see that Kevin McCarthy put that bill on the floor well before he needed to. We've got four weeks to negotiate. I see no real problem here. Four weeks is enough as far as you're concerned. More than enough. Henry Trace of Vita Partners. Subscribe to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Listen live every weekday starting at 7 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, TuneIn, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can watch us live on Bloomberg Television and always on the Bloomberg Terminal. Thanks for listening. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.